Live from Steppenwolf Theater in Chicago, hello podcast fans and welcome to Booth One, our adventures in the art of lively conversation. I'm your host, Gary Zabinski, and I'm here with my lovable and huggable co-host, as always, <laughs> Roscoe. How are you, Roscoe? I'm terrific. We have many things to look forward to on the broadcast, including the fact that I hope to be able to use the expression, complete heterochronia iridium on this broadcast. Wow. And that will make sense when we get there. If you can work that into a sentence, you will be my all-time hero. You, uh, will, you will be my grammar girl for the year. <laughs> well, stay tuned because it's coming up. Well, we're remote podcasting from the theater facilities of Steppenwolf here in Chicago, one of the great great theaters of America, and an on-site episode for a very, very cool reason. Recently, you and I went to see the production here of Domesticated, Bruce Norris's play that's been here now for a couple of weeks. It's running through February 7th, and we have in our presence an actress who's appearing in this current production, Melanie Nealon, plays the role of Casey. Hi, how Hi, are you? I'm Welcome. Fantastic. How are you? You're in this timely and scandalously delicious play. Can I say that? Scandalously <laughs> delicious. Yes, a perfect way to describe it. Melanie was born and raised in Highland Park. It's just north of Chicago, and she has a rich ancestry. You're Hungarian, Russian, Lithuanian, Mongolian, Irish, and French. Mm-hmm. I get all of that except the Mongolian and the Irish. I don't know how they ever got into the mix, but you're going to tell us. Neither do I, but really? I guess it has something to do with Genghis Khan and my Hungarian ancestry. Ancestry, but you know, that's a whole show. We may have to have you back on. Oh, well, <laughs> you now reside in Los Angeles and you're pursuing an acting career there. And in your spare time, you're dancing ballet and you're majoring in mathematics. Is that correct? Co- yep, <laughs> <laughs> a bit of an overachiever, wouldn't you say, Roscoe? I think so. <laughs> well, welcome to the podcast, Melanie. Um, we Thank sure you. do feel booth one sitting here in the beautiful confines of Steppenwolf Theater. Uh, I'll bet you're excited to walk through that stage door every night into one of the finest theaters in America. Yes. Is that cool for you? It's unbelievably amazing. It's the coolest thing ever. I thrive on it. It's like, wow, there's there's nothing quite like it. Yeah. You've it's performed amazing. here before. <laughs> this is not your first play at Steppenwolf, right? Yeah, I, I performed at uh, Russian Transport, which was two years ago, and I played Mira, Sonia, Vera, and the girl. And I had to actually catch up on a lot of Russian for that play because three of my characters... Uh, spoke fluent Russian, and they were girls being transported in from Russia who were told that they were supposed to be models coming into America, but then, surprise. Oh, that old trick. That's how I came to America. (laughs) (laughs) That's exactly what happened to me. Speaking of languages, I'm going to pull things out of your CV here, and we need to address some of these because I'm I'm still astonished. Full disclosure to our listeners, you're 19 years old, correct? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> now you're fluent in about seven languages could that be could that be accurate i think so i um, sometimes here let me listen to me wait what is it i've got chinese is the first one that i had and then i had uh turkish hindi russian uh french french and then english i speak cat and several varieties is that like meow or Oh no, it's a very realistic one. It's, it's quite it's quite good. <laughs> Maybe I'll show it to you sometime. C A T? Yeah, absolutely. Oh. Cats. Okay. Oh, well do, do you mean cat is in felines? Oh yes, absolutely. Here's the funny thing is that for most of these languages I know very effectively how to start a conversation, carry it on for about a good twenty to twenty five minutes and then end it whenever I have like an absence of vocabulary in my head with the amount of swear words that I know. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> that's a fantastic that's skill. Fantastic. Thank you. Very I much. think you, I think you have a career in diplomacy. Thank you. Yeah, you <laughs> so, so was this just something you you just you discovered that you had a capacity for when you had to learn Russian? Or was it something that you'd been studying languages all along? More when I when I was learning Chinese, I figured I was very young. I was in eighth grade. Well, I guess it's not too long ago. But regardless, I thought, well, I know enough Japanese, which was about like five words. Chinese is going to be easy. And it wasn't in the beginning, but then after a while, it just really clicked. And then I enjoyed it so much because it was like solving a puzzle. You learned each new word and then like piece by piece you decoded somebody's true meaning whenever they were trying to speak to you. It was very, very nice. And I loved that experience very much and got addicted to it. I've been always challenged in learning languages, including English, clearly. Clearly. Um, how about, hey, Roscoe, how about you? Do you? I, I have a tragic relationship with trying to learn foreign languages. I, I, had a bet, I never got over this. I had a bet with my father that I could get at least a B in French in college. And I, and it's, so you do speak. I know, I know it was tragic. Right. I couldn't hear the difference in pronunciations huh. and my teacher, you know, the difference between B A mm -hmm. B E A U and B O N N E. Mm. And she would say, écoutez, bon. And right. I would say, bon. And she'd go, no, 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 bon. <laughs> and I said, I'm saying bon. What are you saying that I'm not saying? So it, it, it. Uh, I lost the bet. What was the bet for? Like tickets to Gypsy or something? <laughs> yes, it was. It was tickets to see Angela Lansbury and Gypsy. No, I think it was wow. fifty dollars or something. Oh, oh dang! No, it. No, no. I've never <laughs> had. But, it. I, but I lost and I never got over it. I've never understood, and I can't do accents. I've never had a great ear for languages, and I'm envious of you. You're so you, nice. Your, your yeah. love of mathematics as well. Well, mm -hmm. I say love. You're majoring in mathematics. I assume you love it. Who, who would major so. in mathematics? Why are you majoring? <laughs> well, I, I, explain this. Me. Defend yourself. Why are you majoring in mathematics? Because it's one of the few curriculums that has a definite answer for most things. I mean, I guess that's open for interpretation depending on which kind of mathematics you're studying. Mm. But it's just everything fits together, kind of like the puzzle um, idea, the, the puzzle approach that I have towards languages. It's, it's very fascinating. It's calming, too. Do you, you know? And there's like a level of rational thought that I learned from mathematics, like a specific way of training your brain to see the world. Like most people are pattern-based thinkers. I mean, that's what humans are intrinsically, is that we see a certain thing happen a number of times, and then we just assume that it's going to happen next. But mathematics is often based on the idea of rational, deductive reasoning, where you can only state things that are absolutely true, and I find that very fascinating. Do you have that same approach to acting? Hmm... Let's see. This acting it, it would, and, and the theater mm -hmm. in itself would seem seems to me to be a very subjective type of approach to things. There's no, there really are no right ways to do a play, do yeah. a role, say a line, get mm -hmm. a laugh. There are wrong ways. There are wrong ways. <laughs> but there's not necessarily the absolute, we nailed it. We've got mm -hmm. it exactly right. Put this in a bottle. This show will never be better than it is right now because we did it perfectly. Do you have, right. Yeah, what, what's, so true. What's your, what's your youthful approach to that? Um, I think that mathematics can possibly, or at least the mathematical reasoning, can be applied to acting in a certain way. Because when you're trying to decipher a character from a script, it's kind of like a little bit of a detective work thing. 
where you discern it's the characters different characteristics based on like pieces of evidence that you can only absolutely know for sure and i i think that even in judging people's character and i not to say that i judge people's character that sounds <laughs> terrible we, we but... all we all we all do it dear really yeah. <laughs> whether, we, whether we admit it or not we do right it's i i find that i i'm afraid of making assumptions about people because that goes against the mathematical reasoning that i so value and that i can only base certain judgments about a person's character and absolute pieces of evidence and everything else is open to interpretation because people are very complex and I think that understanding of human complexity and the realization that we know very little affects how I see my characters and that they're very complex people who can't be put into a box who when you can't have performance that's just you know 100% absolutely wonderful in every possible way because it's it's the human experience it's profoundly complex it's universally complex. Well, you're wonderful in this play, Thank you. Um, in the role of Casey, and you've obviously done your homework and your investigative work well, and your you. Sherlock Holmesy uh, work with <laughs> Bruce Norris and the other members of the cast. Tell us a little about Domesticated. What sort of play would you say, would you describe it as? And give us a little bit about the plot line. Hmm. I would say that it's a play that masters in the art of moral ambiguity, which is something that Bruce Norris does so well as a playwright. He's fantastic at that. And I go to the audience talkbacks just to listen to what people have to say. And by and large, most people are so divided on which side they stand on, Bill or Judy's, these two characters. It's it's the Bill plays a politician. I'm sorry, Tom <laughs> plays the politician Bill who uh, cheats on his wife and she has to, in a Hillary Clinton, Bill Clinton type of comparison, has to deal with that and they have the speech at the beginning and it's about this incredible fallout and the passions arise. And one of my friends said that he brought his friends to see the play and they were so impassioned by it that they like almost, they had some drama. It's, it's very real to people. I mean, it's, I, I love just how genuine each person in this play brings life, how genuinely they bring life to their characters. It just, it's so, it's fantastic. We had some drama in our row when we saw the play mm -hmm. uh, in the beginning of the second act where <laughs> Tom, who plays Bill, Bill Pulver, the pulverizer, yeah. he's regaling the bartender in the bar with mm -hmm. his theories about feminism and mm -hmm. the male and female roles in society mm. and what women really are and what women, women really want, what they don't want, what mm -hmm. they think they want you to want. and mm -hmm. uh, it, it just goes on and on. And at, at, at times it's maddening. You want to throttle the person next to you or you want to leap up on stage and throttle him. But then in the next moment, somehow Bruce Norris manages to make him seem almost sympathetic. You mm -hmm. feel a little sorry for him. Well, yeah. in the middle of all of that, some woman gets up out of the very middle of our row and makes her way very quickly, whooshing past us. And I thought, oh, really? she just got majorly offended by all of this. Wow. Later on, she showed up and she sat in the row in front of us. It turned out she had some <laughs> sort of gastrointestinal issue during intermission. <laughs> and she came back... Darn. I, I thought you'd have finally offended someone enough to walk out on a step in the show, and it wasn't her. That's fantastic. Yeah, well, you know, I, I have a question. The, mm -hmm. the, you play the sullen teenage daughter. Yep. And I would think it's a difficult role because there's she barely has a moment where she's sympathetic towards her parents. We don't mm -hmm. really get to see much in, in terms of her being the sympathetic character. Mm -hmm. So what is the challenge for you to try to have the audience 
like you and sympathize mm-hmm. with you and root for you when you're have a lot of dialogue where you're just nasty to your parents. I mean, yeah. I think that's a real challenge. It's it, what I had to find is a way to realize that she does very much love her parents, and of course, that's the reason why she's just so vitriolic and just offensive in every way, and just loves pissing them off so much. And I think that she's somebody who's just been so hurt because she trusted her father, and maybe trusted her mother to know better about her father. I mean, like, yeah, I can't really point fingers and say, but some a character in the play even says, "Judy, you can't be naive." You, I mean, there's some everywhere you've he's been 10 years and et cetera et cetera all this stuff that's been happening I I trusted my parents and they've in my opinion as Casey they've seriously betrayed me and I think that I can't really express a level of vulnerability or or show um like my wounds to people because I just don't believe that it's safe to do so yeah. I think you it's know. challenging, and, and you do a great job. Well, thank you very much. Yeah, Ta- yeah, you're not you're not fully likable for a lot of the play. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but then again, you're playing a teenager, mm-hmm. uh, a senior in high school, about mm-hmm. to go to college, and and you begin to really understand the emotions that are being ripped apart in this young woman of. That age. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, not only is are your teenage years tough enough, but now you have to deal with this. Yeah. How, how old were you when you started acting seriously? Seriously, I think was I was thirteen, I believe, and then I started acting in a Red Orchid theater, and I became a founding ensemble member, and just was able to brush shoulders with some of my greatest Chicago theater heroes, like Kirsten Fitzgerald and Michael Shannon, which was just amazing. And I was in a very Marian authorized children's Scientology pageant, uh-huh. which was just super, super. It's basically the nativity play for yeah, Scientology. That's the so greatest funny. title in the world, <laughs> right? So it is fantastic. Quite a mouthful. It doesn't fit on any of my bios. Like list your works. Uh-huh. I'm like, oh, oh god, here we go. And um, also the Iliad, where I played King Priam. That was a very interesting piece. We were an all female cast playing all the male roles, you know, starting the nine-year war, which was basically had begun over somebody stealing somebody else's bride. So we had the female characters as Barbie dolls, and they were actors. They were very present. They had voices and thoughts and emotions and everything. How did you get this role? Did they just cast you because you'd worked here before and they knew you were great? (laughs) (laughs) I would love to believe that. I don't know. Maybe. I received an email from my agent saying, we'd we'd like you to audition for this part. So then I just sent in a tape and then received one email back saying, okay, you got it. And I'm like, what? That was because for Russian Transport, I had three auditions and it was a wonderful process. You you didn't even have to show up here to audition in front of uh, Bruce Norris? I didn't. I'm not complaining, though. No. <laughs> wow! Wow! Well, congratulations! That's Thank fantastic. You. That's the way it's got it. That's the way I've it been auditioning be. here for thirty years, and they've never cast me. Really? Wait for real? No, I made oh, that up. It. Do you have a tape? <laughs> no, she has, she has a tape. I was I'll trying to be dramatic, word. but I mean, what a what a coup! I, you know, that's fantastic. Sh- yeah, that's that's fantastic. Chicago yeah. is is filled with talented young women, and here you are starring at yeah. the Steppenwolf. Melanie, <laughs> do you have, do you have any fears? Uh, well, at this point, seven languages at 19 and studying mathematics, I can imagine you have very few, but do you have any fears or phobias? 
phobias or fears. Let me see. That's see, I told one. her. I told her. She's she's got no. She's fearless. She's fearless. I guess. I wonder if maybe that's the reason why I chose mathematics is because I have a phobia of irrationality, and that's a funny thing to say for an actor because most people consider I, the af- emotional realm. You know, I, I'm afraid of calculus. You are. Yeah, fear, totally <laughs> You're afraid yeah. of calculus. Yeah. You have other fears as well. Would you I care do. to talk about them? Every once in a while, we do a little segment about my biggest and only fear, which our listeners know very well, and Roscoe's more than well aware of. I've been listening to this for 30 years. Sharks. Really? Yeah, I have a deathly, deathly fear of sharks in deep water. Have you had experience? Uh, Gosh, no. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Nor nor do I plan to have any close encounters of any kind in the near future. But something came to my uh, attention the other day. Uh, They've discovered a shark in the deep ocean that glows in the dark. Wow. (laughs) And is so tiny that it might even fit in the palm of your hand. Regardless of that, I still think there's a danger. They they named it it Eptopterus benchleii. In honor of the shark conservationist and Jaws author Peter Benchley. Really? Oh, that's fantastic. It's a jet black lantern shark with glass like teeth and emerald eyes. So- sounds beautiful. That sounds gorgeous. But and adorable because it can fit in the palm of your hand. They're man eating, godless killing machines. Oh my. But regardless of their emerald eyes, very little is known about the shark, which spends most of its time and its life in the darkest parts of the ocean at depths ranging from like 2,700 to 4,700 feet. That's like, you know, a mile below the surface. So far away from you, that's good. And scientists still, however, do not know what it eats. I can tell them what it (laughs) eats. Prime man flesh, that's what it eats. Gary won't wade at the Oak Street Beach because it's really? extremely likely that there will be a great white shark in Lake Michigan. Anything, wow. yeah, anything water, water above my thighs, I will not go into. Swimming pool, right? Yeah, if I if I you know close my eyes yeah. and remember that it's just a sw- swimming pool is just a swimming pool. <laughs> but scientists behind this discovery say for sure that this pint-sized shark wouldn't send beachgoers into a tizzy. However, I disagree. The idea is that, <laughs> however, they would be stealthier than other lan- lantern sharks. And like other lantern sharks, the glowing isn't so much a way to attract attention, but a form of camouflage. What? What if other sharks learn this trick? Then, then they'll be swimming around, you know, 12-foot great white sharks, camouflaged, now, now, now oh, they're stealth mode. Terrifying. Now, now you can't even go to a swimming pool. Oh they're like, gosh. they're like a cloaked Klingon bird of prey. Now, I didn't think I could catch your phobia, but it's happened just now. <laughs> I think it's a very smart phobia. I think yeah. it's a very well, wise fear because you know you're in their environment and and they can get to you. And by the way, more sharks than ever are swimming along the east coast. Federal researchers announced this week that amid a busy summer in which a record number of fish attacks have attacked. North Carolina beachgoers that the number is up on wow. the East Coast. Watch yourself, Roscoe. Wow. Dang. Count your toes. Count my toes. <laughs> Count your toes. <laughs> every every, you every time you come back. Oh, surprise, you've been bitten. That actually, I believe that would happen. That somebody, you know, that happened to me many times. When I first broke my elbow, I didn't realize that I was in pain until I saw it. 
I believe that was it happen. dislocated. Oh yeah, it was oh, all kinds oh, yeah. of one, off the monkey bars. One was going this way, one oh, was totally. going that way. I was a very prideful little child, mm. and then I climb on the monkey bars, and then I was hanging off one arm because my right hand got really slippery. So then I bellowed to everybody around me, "Oh my God, look at me! I'm hanging off one arm, and I've never hung off one arm before." That quote exactly. And then I fell, and then you just heard this thud. Oh, Ugh. oh. terrible day. Ow. At least I had a cast. Anyways, <laughs> speaking of breaking arms. <laughs> yeah. You have some background in karate. Yes, I, I do. Right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> My mom's over here giving thumbs up. She's like, yes. <laughs> do you think that you could flip Roscoe up over your shoulders and onto his back? <laughs> can I, can, I, can we post that on our video? That'd be really funny. I could sweep him off his feet. In more ways than one. Oh, <laughs> no. cue, cue the sweet music. That would be a great video. Yeah, we may have to. We have to. May have to look at having a little. Video, I would derive a lot video of attachment of to this podcast. You're a purple belt. Yes, I am. We're on the scale of belt colors. Does that? So there's know? purple, then there's brown, then there's black belt. And what's below purple? Oh gosh, like Let's see. lots of them. White, then orange, orange white stripe, yellow, blue, blue black stripe, green. Then purple. Oh, so you're pretty sophisticated. I hope. You're you're right up there. Are yeah. you still studying? I practice by myself, but I'm not enrolled in any classes. But my mom mm. is actually a teacher, and she teaches many karate classes oh. and has that experience. Enrolled you know, someday class. you might get cast in a musical called Company. Are you familiar with Company, the Stephen Sondheim musical? No. Really? Tell me about it. Uh, yeah, there's, it's, about, it's about seven married couples and a single guy. But one of the couples, and it's a, it's a series of vignettes, and it's a musical from the early 70s, but it's a series of vignettes. And one of the early vignettes are one of the couples, Harry and Sarah have Bobby, the single guy, over for dinner, which all of them do. And it turns out that Sarah's been taking karate lessons. And so there's a scene where she actually, where Harry says, well, I bet you can't beat me up. I'm bigger than you. And there's a scene in which she actually does then beat him up. So the next time I hear about a company uh, production that's looking for a Sarah, uh, Sarah, I'm I'm going to mention you. Just just come at me. <laughs> do you sing as well? I do. Good yes. lord! I also play the piano. What? 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 Have you tried anything that you failed at? <laughs> <laughs> I'm so flattered that you. Um. Uh, yeah. Of course. Lots of things. I don't know. Do you, right. Do you cook? Yes, I do. Actually, I love cooking very much. I cooked my first dish, which was Indian butter chicken, and it turned out better the first time than it ever has ever since then it's very strange there's sort of like two pounds of ghee in that or something <laughs> yeah probably yeah how'd you know <laughs> i just know that That's kind exactly of stuff because right. i cook as well and Fantastic. you can't make good indian food without like two pounds of ghee it's which so is, true which is butter as yeah. you as yeah. you know roscoe as I, yes talk to me about is there a scene that that uh, two things mm-hmm. do you have a favorite scene in the play yes and then do you have a scene that you find challenging Mm. And and that you you think you know, just let me get through this scene and try to hit this note and that note and make mm-hmm. it work. Yeah. Or just is that not happening in this? Definitely, I think I have both of those things. My favorite scene is probably the scene where I throw tangerines, um, and my dad tells me to pick them up, and I'm like, <laughs> no, fuck you. <laughs> right. <laughs> because I love having the artistic merit and allowance to say that to anybody, you know, free of consequence. And on stage, it's even better because then you get to say it louder. But yeah. The the challenging scene probably for me is my scene in the second act where I visit 
the ice cream parlor where my dad has invited me. And it's very complicated because I have to try and find a strange balance between, you know, caring for my dad and wanting to see him and wanting him to live up to the standard that I expect him to live up to, you know, and just hoping, praying that he'll somehow find it in his heart to realize and maybe to apologize. I mean... I'm, I'm a stubborn activist. I won't accept anything less because as soon as he starts to try and bullshit his way out of it and say like, well, here's, here's what I think happened. I'm like, um, dang it. And it's this weird struggle that I have where I'm trying not to be an asshole and trying to care, but also trying to be an asshole at the same time. It's like feeling 40,000 things at once. And it's very, it's quite a challenge, but I really like it for that. And it's the one that gets most of my fascination for that reason. How did Bruce help you through that scene or find the through line through that scene. Did you discuss this very thing with him? Uh, Were you kind of left to your devices to discover these things for yourself? He told me that the main thing that I should seek out in that scene is um, kind of like, what was that detective show? The uh, Columbo. Do you remember he told me? I, I could remember, remember it well. <laughs> yes. Do you remember how he was the most impressive interrogator in the entire world? And he was just such a good, good BSer. I mean, he could get information out of anybody. And then he said, I want you to be Columbo in this scene. I want you to be somebody who, yes, you do care about your dad, but you are so good at fucking with him. You know, you catch him in traps at every point. And I think that that instead of telling me to just go forth and just hate my dad with every word and then spew like a volcanic amount of fury, if I try and catch him, then it allows for the opportunity that I can, you know, realize that I, I want him to realize as opposed to just seeing me as angry at him. Maybe he'll say, oh, I am an idiot. And that allows for that weird emotional battle that I was talking about yeah, to happen. Yeah, yeah. Talk to me about the this character who never appears on stage, but who is really very present, at least mm-hmm. in the first act, and then she kind of disappears. Your friend Geneva on oh, the Geneva. phone. Oh, <laughs> Geneva. Um, I, 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 I have a... A very vivid, vivid image in my mind of what, of what Geneva looks <laughs> like and know. who she is. I, for some reason, I, I you you painted her so very, very well. Talk Thank to you. me about Geneva. What does she look like? Who is she? Oh my gosh! Well, of course, I can't describe what she dresses like. Uh, maybe outside of school, I can. She's somebody who just has like fucking Kate Spade purses and she puts them <laughs> on her desk every single day for everybody to see. And you know, I, I really kind of envy that a little bit that she can pull that off. <laughs> but at the same time, I really, and then there's a combination of different people in my high school years that I've, you know, had scruffles with. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, every time something bad happens, like I lose a prop or something, or I carry home my earrings accidentally and then have to carry them back the next day, which is a prop from the stage. I blame it on Geneva or, you know, like something, the chair falls, I blame it on Geneva. Or I flip my hair and hit the corner of my head into the corner of the chair. Geneva Blame it on Geneva. <laughs> she did. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> It's, Geneva sounds like the kind of person who has a lot of apps on her phone, too. Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Um, totally. There was an article in the New Yorker magazine just recently about new apps to download for 2016. <laughs> Fantastic stuff. Wow. I just want to tell you a couple of them. There's, an, there's one called AppChew. AppChew. Just sneeze and feeling lonely? Hire someone nearby to say bless you within seconds. Oh, my God. For real? I think that's brilliant. 
Here's one called D-Side. The old gang is going out to dinner. One has a newborn, one just got divorced, one is allergic to nuts and vinyl. Type it all in, and the app will find a perfectly adequate accommodating restaurant within a five-mile radius. Wow. <laughs> that I could find a use for. Don't you think these yeah, could be useful? I, I, I pretty much think that they are 99% made up, but <laughs> oh, someone's definitely going to take these ideas and run with them. This one's good for you, Roscoe, because you live in a small apartment building. It's called Avoid, A-V-O-Y-D, Avoid. It notifies you when your neighbors have left the building so you don't have to run into them in the hallway. <laughs> that's, that's amazing. A woman has lived downstairs for me for, for 15 years. Wow. And I have, I have not seen her in three years. Maybe she has this wow. app. Maybe. I guarantee it. Maybe. I live in this apartment in Los Angeles with elevators in it, and every person there has dogs, it seems. And then I look at, like, the dog registry, and I don't know, maybe a lot of these people aren't telling the apartment complex about their dogs. That's, I'm 100% sure of. But are are of you them... saying that people aren't honest? What? Melanie? Me? No, never. <laughs> in Los Angeles? <laughs> yes, especially. But then you ask them, hey, your dog's really cute. Can I pet them? And they say yes anyway. And these dogs, when you go to put your hand near them, they're all so vicious. And I'm like, like, oh my god, I get that you're trying to socialize them, but please don't use me as your crash test dummy. It's terrible. So, <laughs> I would love that app. I really would. Beloved by the audience, hated by dogs. <laughs> yes. Melanie Nealon, ladies you don't, and gentlemen. You, you, you don't have a dog, right? I did. You she did. Away. I'm sorry. Is it yeah. a sad, sad, sad? I had a dog and a mm -hmm. couple of dogs that passed. So it's almost a. <laughs> <laughs> let, 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 I'm going to take over for a moment while Gary mm -hmm. pulls himself together. Do you, I'd, I'd always love asking this question of performers. Do you have a show or a performance that you saw early mm -hmm. in life? Like, like your first memory of something that just blew you away and thought, yeah. oh my God, I have to be in show business. I have to dance. I have huh. to do this. This is thrilling. Or not a show, but just some favorite things that you've seen or experienced. When I first saw Memoirs of a Geisha, I was very young. You see, I'm very mature now. <laughs> no, I've been about the world. I first saw it, and I thought, how interesting it would be that if I were to compare this to what I do every day, which is, you know, play with Legos and go into different worlds and pretend I'm some character from Lord of the Rings, I could do that every single day. Imagine if I had a career like that where I could go into a world and play pretend and keep doing that even as I pass the age where it's not socially acceptable anymore. And I thought that would be an absolute dream. I want to be in that world. And I love that movie. I watch it again and again because it feels like, I mean, at that point, especially, it was a very exotic movie. It was very different and otherworldly. Wow. I, I, I think you may that. be the only person I've ever met who's actually seen that movie. Really? <laughs> yes. As Sam Golden would say, the audience stayed away in droves. <laughs> stayed away in <laughs> yeah, droves? Stayed away yeah, in droves. Did not That's do so well. funny. Not a successful film. But any yeah. stage or, or stage actress that you have been blown away by? Funny you should ask. I went to see Luna Gale with my mom in Los Angeles and saw Mary Beth Fisher perform. And then <laughs> within the first three lines of the play, she was talking to this person and she had like this, you know, thermos of coffee or something. And then she's like, you know, kind of uppity and really like caffeinated. And then she makes a funny joke. and Her comedic timing is so brilliant. She's so spot on. And then suddenly she has, I was laughing before I even knew I was laughing. And it was so real and so amazing. I was into it instantly, which is, you know, I mean, for plays in this modern world, especially me talking about virtual reality, 
that's a little bit more difficult. And I knew in those first three seconds of watching the play, I'm like, I really want to be in a scene with this woman. I, I hope that that happens someday in my life. And lo and behold, I look at the cast list and Mary Beth Fisher's in the cast list. And, and, is, and, and is your mother. <laughs> yes, <laughs> exactly. Wow. And then I wasn't... Did this... you freak out? Were you, were you like... I, I, I feeling intimidated at that moment before you had met her and and of knew course, she was I completely was fangirling all over the place. Fangirling, <laughs> and it was yeah. funny because you would think that I mean I can't just consider that a coincidence. It's just one person. It's bound to happen. She's involved in Chicago theater, but being mm. in the same class as, as Tom Irwin when he was teaching this class in Los Angeles that I was with him with, he had the first thing I noticed about him is he had this unbelievable resonant voice that could carry through like every amount of this this little classroom that we were in this black box theater that we were in and I thought my god I would love to see him on the stage or or like witness in some point and kind of the same feeling that I had about Mary. it was amazing these two people in like my freaking heroes in this cast I love this so yeah sorry. it's kismet it's, it's, it's kismet it's, you studied acting with him yes I did I absolutely wow. did but what you said about Tom Irwin's voice, you know, yes. I, it was, I thought, how can someone, t- well, I'm doing yeah, it, but, but he's sort of like this the entire show, but yeah. it's, it's not forced or pretentious. It's just a huge instrument. Exactly. And then he has this, you can hear like the overtones when he speaks as if he's some kind of bel canto singer. It's amazing. Mm. Oh. It's definitely something that I really, I really want to be able to achieve that someday to be able to have that natural resonance where it's just effortlessly booming, yeah. you know? Who do you get inspired by besides these two uh, in, in either in living or not living classic or modern day where where does your inspiration come from in terms of other actors or artists Meryl Streep and Charlize Theron are people that I really, really look up to. (laughs) I I love the amount of variety that they're able to play. Mm -hmm. And that's one thing that I really look forward to in this world as I go through it, is trying to see how many different people, or not people, animals, anything, spirit, whatever, I can empathize with. And I think that acting is the perfect vehicle for that because it's something that specifically requires a high level of varied empathy. And when I first saw Charlize Theron in the movie Monster and just could not even recognize her, to be able to understand somebody who registers a high scale on the sociopathic spectrum, you know, is just unbelievable. Because, yeah. I mean, it's so far away from what most people consider. That was a, one of the great transformations in mm-hmm. movie-making history, for yeah. sure. Yeah. It was amazing. She just appeared naked on a cover of a magazine, by the way. I don't awesome. know if you're aware of that. Still look up. <laughs> what, what do you, what? Char- Charlize Theron. One nice other, marketing tool, that. I would say so. A couple of other apps that you might think about downloading. There's one called Looky, Looky, L-O-O-K-Y, Looky, mm-hmm. Looky which I like. Isn't the human eye contact gross? <laughs> Looky streams a video of the person directly in front of you in the corner of your screen. Oh, so no. use it while ordering your pour-over coffee, testifying in court, walking down the street, or even watching live theater. What? <laughs> You'll never have to look up from your phone again. Well, oh there are people God. who are definitely going to be trying to download the Looky because wow. they're, they're, they want to be able to, they don't want to look in people's eyes. And the last one, the last one is, uh, no, I don't have a minute. A map <laughs> feature that identifies the locations of those annoying clipboard people on the sidewalks. <laughs> oh my god. 
God, those people. <laughs> and gives you an alternative walking route to your destination. I need that app so much. Hit the I feel guilty button to donate <laughs> instantly to Greenpeace. <laughs> How did you know that was what I was thinking Greenpeace, of? Greenpeace, was it? Yeah, Santa yeah. Monica College. Yeah. When I, was, I was trying to establish gen eds there. Wow. I transfer to UCLA. And then it's Greenpeace people surrounded me. I think six of them. And I felt like I could not physically escape and somehow got like two months into this $7 a month donation program. And I called trying to cancel and she said, you know, you, you give me my paycheck. And I'm like, oh, <gasps> just, <sighs> just, just cancel it. Just cancel it. I can't. Ugh. That's a great Definitely line. Definitely going to download that. That is a great line. I won't eat today because you're trying to cancel your, <laughs> your, your donation to us. Exactly. <laughs> I'm going to go out and club a baby seal now. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> This is a complete non sequitur, but this is how I segue. This uh, is right. I, before I forget this, I have to give a quick shout out to friend of the show, Cheetah Rivera, <gasps> and a quick get well really? soon and fast. She took a fall over the holidays. Oh my God. Cheetah Rivera. She has a small stress fracture in her hip, mm-hmm. but she's going to be fine. Mm-hmm. Uh, she had to cancel her engagement at the Cafe Carlisle, which was supposed to be happening starting next week for two weeks, but Mm -hmm. she's moved it to April. So that just means she needs a couple of months to recuperate. Tommy Toon's taking over. Tommy Toon. By the way. Wow. Can you tell her that I worship her and I love her and I love her song, The Pain Song? Why don't they mention the pain? Why don't they mention about dancers? The terrible aches, the crack of the bone at the moment it breaks. Tell us a little bit about your film career. Um, I know that's one of the big reasons you're living in Los Angeles now. That's correct, yes. You're um, looking to make your way in film and television. Mm-hmm. Um, so tell us what's going on with your film career. You're, you're in something that's making the festival circuit right now. Yes, I am. Melissa Fitzsimmons was the director and producer of this short film called My First Love, which is about this girl that gets broken up uh, with by her boyfriend on Christmas Eve terrible i know Mm. and then she transfers her love onto a hostess cupcake it's really great (laughs) i had to eat i think like 80 cupcakes for each take it was just and they had like a bucket near me where i was spitting them out but in the scene you know you accidentally swallow so much it was great were those chocolate ones with the white squiggle thing on top absolutely she falls in love with the hostess she falls in love with it she goes out buys the cupcake and tells it i love you you know, I, I understand that. <laughs> I've, I've been there. I, 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 I've heard you say that to your dinner before. Right? Yes, yes. Hello, pizza. I love you. <laughs> How's that film um, doing? Uh, how's the reception on the on the film? Oh, unbelievably amazing. I Good. Just, yeah, it's, she's winning like awards everywhere. And then my manager, Nancy Scanlon, she's a publicist, she's a nan manager, she's doing all these things for me. She's making sure that the word is getting out everywhere, and I'm so eternally grateful for that. Yeah, I can't wait to get back to L.A. and get back into that. You know, I have some projects waiting for me, and I'm super excited. Mm-hmm. Marshall Nealon, are you related? You, Wait, am I am I friends with that person on Facebook by any chance? Is he from New Zealand? <laughs> no, no. Mar- Marshall Nealon was an early movie star and oh. film director. And producer. You are related? Are you oh, sure? you're not. That, like ancient That, that background voice you hear is, is <laughs> Leslie, who is Melanie's mother, who's here in the room with us. Um, to make sure that she doesn't swear on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking A. <laughs> this, this will be our first, first episode to go out with a parental advisory sticker. By the way, oh, the, the festival 
circuit for Henry Gamble's birthday party is extremely alive and fiery. It's just got, we just got reviewed by Roger Ebert. Dot com, which is unbelievably amazing. Well, yeah, it's it's gone. It to made like, me nervous when she, Roger Ebert has risen from the grave <laughs> because he was so excited about this film. He was so excited. There's about a RogerEbert.com without Roger yes, Ebert. Yes, yes. What right. is this film? Oh, this is a film about um, the con, the strange overlapping between homosexuality and the church culture in like a Midwestern town. And I play a secular teen who is a gay teen who's extremely sarcastic and witty and great and whatever. And she's uh. like, hey, Henry, main character, you're gay, come out. You're great, come with us, join our circle instead uh-huh. of, you know, uh-huh. feel, feel great about yourself. And what's the full name of the movie? Henry Gamble's Birthday Party. Henry Gamble's Birthday Party. Meg Falcon's party. in it and she's in the cast with me here. Which was also just another wow. amazing surprise when I looked well, at this cast list. You know, I'm like, oh my God. Talent- Talented people work everywhere. You'll mm-hmm. keep running into them over and over and over again, that's yeah. for sure. What he, uh, my, my, my colleague here, Roscoe, meant by Marshall Nealon, spelled mm-hmm. the same way as your last name, oddly. Mm-hmm. Um, I came across something the other day, and I'm always looking for interesting things to tell our listeners about, especially things to do in these winter months in Chicago when, you know, you can't really be outside. I came across this video the other day of a time-lapse photography reconstruction of something called the Fairy Castle. Do you know what the Fairy Castle is? No. The Fairy Castle is a gigantic dollhouse of many, many rooms, beautifully, beautifully decorated and built and it exists now at the Museum of Science and Industry in Chicago. They recently really? did a five or $600,000 restoration on the whole thing, and they restored all of the bits and pieces, and they put it all back together, and this is a video of them putting all the pieces back together. Oh so I asked if you're any relation to Marshall Nealon or Marshall Nealon Jr. Mm-hmm. Um, he was a TV and film editor, son of Marshall Nealon, actor, director, producer in the silent film era, made several films with silent movie star Colleen Moore. <gasps> and here's what's weird. Colleen Moore had the fairy castle built and she was the one who donated it to the Museum of Science and Industry. It's the ultimate enchanted castle, lush gardens, sumptuous rooms, decorated with precious furniture and priceless art. There are glowing chandeliers and elegant bathrooms with working electric lights and actual wow. plumbing with running water what? in the bathrooms. Oh, uh, between 1928 God. and 35, Colleen Moore spent a reported half million dollars on the fairy castle, employing some hundred... Hollywood set directors and designers uh, and craftsmen from the uh, movie era. And she also took it on tour from 1935 to 1939 and raised about $650,000 for children struggling with poverty. Wow. But Colleen Moore was... She was an immense star of the silent Definitely. era. And you, very know, you know Colleen Moore? Of course. My, was it two great-grandma? Two great-great-grandma or grandma? She looked just like Colleen Moore. I put their pictures wow. side by side, and you could just... I mean, I swear she had, like, you know, a, a nocturnal identity that she was just Right. In well, look, and I happen to have with me a copy of Colleen Moore's autobiography. You're kidding me! Silent Star. Oh, my God. Perfect. <laughs> There's a very specific picture that looks just... Because the two are in the same pose and everything. Wow. Their hair, that day, just everything, you know, like... You know, what, a couple of things about Colleen Moore. She was one of the first flappers. Yeah. And she helped popularize the bob mm-hmm. haircut. And do you know what she suffered from? What? Do you know what she suffered from? Mm-mm. Complete heterochronia 
Iridius. What? You've worked that? it into the I've show. I've worked it oh, into the show. I think I know what show. that means. Congratulations. What does it mean? Iridius, like Iris. Yes. And heterochronia. Yes. Different colored eyes. Yes. Yes. <laughs> oh my gosh. This girl is a genius. Oh. She is a genius. This is why she could never make a film in color because she had one blue eye and one brown eye. Wow. And her film career started because her uncle helped get some of D.W. Griffith's films passed the censorship board hmm. in Chicago because they were they were going to cut them or not allow them to be shown. So uh, he owed a favor to D.W. Griffith owed him a favor. So that Colleen Moore went out to Hollywood, started in bit roles, mm -hmm. then in Westerns and <laughs> then became a huge movie star Wow! and donated her, you know, and then her, she's, she's the perfect example of someone, the silent era ended and that was the end of her career. Yeah. But she was one of the founders of Merrill Lynch. So Fantastic. she did. She did not. She did not but suffer. She did not. She had plenty of time to build a half million dollar dollar. She house. was not. She was not suffering in miniature mink. She was not suffering in miniature <laughs> mink. No. Anyway, the uh, fairy castle has been fully restored and it's back on display at the Museum of Science and Industry. You can go to msichicago.org to have a look at it. And I know you don't have a lot of time and a lot of days off, but if you have time to head down to Hyde Park. Uh, and go to the museum. I'm sure you would love this. Definitely. I just want to tell our listeners about it. It's That's on display. So cool. It's on permanent display. Permanent now, display so. since mm -hmm. like 1955 or something. Since wow. like 1955. Mm -hmm. But it's been off the floor for a while while they restored it. Mm -hmm. And in fact, some of the murals, the miniature murals, were made by Walt Disney. What? No. Really? Oh my God. Really, real diamonds in the chandeliers and oh real God. pearls along the walls. Yeah, it's, it's supposed That's to be incredible. absolutely fantastic. Uh, I do need to give one other shout out to our listeners. On Friday, January 29th on PBS at probably 9 p.m. Eastern, I can't be sure, American Masters is going to debut its season with a Mike Nichols special. We lost Mike Nichols very recently. I was a big fan of his. I, I worked with him on a show once, well, twice. Same show twice. <laughs> this is directed by Elaine May. So it's going to be a whole series of interviews and a retrospective of, of Mike Nichols' life. Uh, again, that's Friday, January 29th. Probably about the time that this podcast is being aired, you'll hear about it. So I just want to let our listeners know. Melanie, something that we do. Do you? I know you have to get backstage to get ready for your show, but if you have a few minutes, there's... Who needs to warm up? I throw a couple of oranges <laughs> in the air to, to warm up to make sure my aim is right and I don't hit. Have you ever hit people in the front row? I've always wanted to. Uh, have you? <laughs> what ends up happening I mean, is that I'm supposed to, originally I would literally throw them and then it would land into like the seventh row and I think that I hit a couple people Maybe in the face, but I'm not sure. But uh, the funny thing is, is that the environment of the audience and stage relationship is so strong that people are like, well, I can't say anything or complain or anything because, yeah, you know, it's yeah. part well, of the they, stage. They go into the audience. I was in oh, the second yeah. row. Yeah. And people, they, they pick them up. They pick them up drastically and try and put them on stage because they're like, oh, they need these. This isn't supposed to happen. I'd take mine home. Yeah, For I want sure. people to. Like a, I want like, a to. like a baseball from a baseball game. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Yeah. If it leaves the stage, it's, it's mine. Here's, a, here's <laughs> my right. souvenir orange from the Steppenwolf Theater. <laughs> I have a very pertinent question, and I'm yes. almost embarrassed to ask this. Embarrassed for myself, not ask for away. you. But perhaps you can tell me. I understand the whole idea of the gymnasium at the beginning of the show where mm -hmm. she's giving the presentation about the animal kingdom, and I've got all of that. Mm -hmm. 
no problem. However, as the play went on, the significance of the basketball court began to lose meaning for me. Mm. Um, was there any conversation or discussion during rehearsal or the tech time or production time about the actual P? I, I thought the stage, the big open stage space worked beautifully with things rolling on, rolling off. Mm -hmm. But after the first scene, and then when she maybe came back and did a couple of other animal things and she was supposed to be in a gymnasium, right. it, it lost significance for me. Was there anything really? else that had to that I that I'm missing? Something about teamwork or passing mm -hmm. the ball or setting <laughs> setting the pick or But does that really ever happen in a gymnasium setting? Not really, no. <laughs> maybe that was his point and we were brainstorming as to all of these reasons because we came up with, oh well, it's a middle school dynamic and that people are just like basically throwing food. Literally, we are literally throwing food at each other. Wow, we're spilling drinks and I'm throwing tangerines. And there's a, like a level of aggressiveness. And then that's the place of like the school setting where there's a true gender divide. Because in sports, women are capable of certain physical things and men are capable of certain other physical things. And that is not an absolute. And there are always exceptions. But that's where the divide begins to really take place in a childhood experience for most people. But I have an interpretation, and this is just my personal interpretation. Okay, good. This is, is what that, I want to know. That her, the entire play is Cassidy's presentation. The entire play. <laughs> oh. Wow. So I theorize that the reason she has different Cassidy examples, is, is oh, your sister. sister in the play. Yes. And she never has lines except when she's doing her presentation yes. speech in front of a microphone, just for our listeners' sake. Right. right. Yes. And she's adopted from Cambodia. Yes. Or Japan, <laughs> if you want to yes. that. You never quite know. <laughs> Definitely so Cambodia. Funny. Yes. Uh -huh. And I theorize that she's she has different examples that she presents that are in reference to the animal kingdom. And then she says example 42 or example 3 and then doesn't say anything after that. But instead, as soon as she says example 3, it goes into the next scene. And I theorize that example 3 is the next scene. And she's describing example like 42 is when the two parents have their big blowout. And yeah. it's a combat in the of the sexual mysteries of the animal kingdom because after all, we are part of the animal kingdom. And also something very key that I noticed at the very end, which is that Cassidy, she's at very, very end, last scene, when the two parents are in the university and they're sitting on the park bench with the tree over them, they're talking, Cassidy's watching the birds with her binoculars. She turns away from the birds and begins to watch her parents. <laughs> I noticed that. You did? I noticed that. Yeah, she's sitting on the steps, right? Yeah. Because yeah. they're, they're an object of scientific and biological fascination. No, just and when like she looks animals. up and looks at them, it's very noticeable. My, yeah? eye, my eye was drawn right to it. And I Fantastic. thought, what an interesting moment this is. What she's an suddenly message. Wondering. Something we like to do with our guests is a little game. It's sort of a parlor game. It's called Chat Pack. Okay. It's just a bunch of questions that randomly might come up, things that I might never think about asking or things that you might never think about telling us about yourself. Mm -hmm. So if you would be game enough for it, I'd like yes. to play this with you. Uh, I'm going to ask you to draw a card, and Roscoe and I will also play along. All right. I draw this card. What's that say? So it says, if everyone were required to wear a hat at all times, what sort of hat would you wear? Hmm. Wow. Let's see. A Mario hat. <laughs> a Mario hat? Or, or a Legend of Zelda, like, green sock hat with ears and, like, blonde hair. 
you would wear that all the time. I think so. It's the first thing that came up in my head. Roscoe, I think she stole your answer. I did. <laughs> uh, uh, what, is, what is Legend of Zelda? Should it's I the know greatest that? game that has ever existed. It's a video game. Yes. Wow. Video game. As Definitely. is Mario. Mm-hmm. I have a very large head, mm-hmm. and I look kind of simple where I, when I wear a hat. So I'm distressed by this. Speaking of intelligence. Speaking of large heads, one other app that you might get <laughs> is the Uh-huh app. It's called Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Turn on this app when talking to a narcissistic friend. It will provide responses like, right, really, and no way, as you multitask. <laughs> The only thing I've ever looked good in and slightly whimsical is a Santa Claus hat. Really? So I would love, uh-huh, walking through, uh-huh. Walking through life really? in, in July and August, perhaps at Oak Street Beach, <laughs> wearing swimming trunks and a, and a Santa Claus hat. That's fantastic. That's oh, so interesting. Isn't it just, I'm sorry. Move right along, Gary. What kind of hat would you wear? I, I'd, probably, wow. I'd probably wear a trilby because I'm old-fashioned and I have a small nice. head and not very many things look good on me. Larry Newman Jr. wears trilbies. Yeah. Nice. I'd like to see you in a three-cornered hat. Like, like... What? <laughs> yeah. at, the end, at the end of the gangplank over shark-infested waters? <laughs> yes. yes. And, then, and then as you plunged into the ocean, you could go... You could say, oh my, look, the, that, that shark is lit from within. It's glowing in the dark. It's glowing in the dark. <laughs> I will be eaten slowly over the oh, course of many days. I would wear a shark hat. By a bench I would a constantly wear a shark, especially yes. right now, whenever I'm in your presence. <laughs> would you like to play another one? I would love to Fantastic. play another one. Who is the most famous person you have ever met? Hmm. Wow. Who is the most famous person I've ever... Oh, Emmy Rossum, when I was an extra on Shameless. I'm not sure I know who you're speaking of. Emmy Rossum. Oh, she's on Shameless. She's also a singer, and she was in The was Phantom of the, Phantom Opera. the Opera. Ah, mm-hmm. yes. Yeah. Sorry, I'm I embarrassed. forget. And then I also met, like, the Susan Boyle of China. Wait, if we're considering fame, the amount of people that know a certain person, since China's so big, and I went on tour with this guy, I'm going to probably assume that he was the most famous Everybody person. watches him, right? Everybody yeah. in China knows who he is. Everyone. I think, yeah, most, at least... What's his name I again? Zhu uh, Zhiwen, and I called him Zhu Shushu, which means Uncle Zhu. Oh, yeah. and he was smitten. He was, I don't know. Wow. <laughs> <Maybe>. <laughs> Who's the most famous person you've ever met, Roscoe? I met Ingrid Bergman once. Wow. Vanessa Redgrave, Maggie Smith. What? Al Gore. Oh, my God. Rex Harrison was mean to me. Really? Yes. Why? He, would, he wouldn't sign my program. What did you see him in? I saw him in a Pirandello play. Really? In London mm. when I was 16. And he couldn't be bothered with you? He, could, he, he brushed past us. <sighs> Well, that's wow. a story in itself. With his hand, you know, go away. Good God. <laughs> Leave me alone. <laughs> I talked to G- President Gerald Ford on the phone once, but I didn't actually meet him. You, and you've met a few politicians, governors and whatnot. Yeah. I think um, maybe the most famous person I've met maybe is Mike Nichols. Mike Nichols. Or Harold yeah. Prince. But didn't you work with some famous people in shows? I guess so. It doesn't. It sort of doesn't register. Jeremy Irons, Glenn Close. Nice. Liza right. Minnelli. I never, nice. I never worked with Liza. No, no. never did. No. I met her twice. Yeah. <laughs> and that's the end of our podcast. No. Thank you so much. Mic drop. Mic drop. <laughs> All right, we're going to play one more Yay. question. This is my favorite part of the show. We this should is just mine too. we should just do a show called Chat Pack. 
we have time for one more question. Yay. This is a lot of chat pack questions for us to do on one particular show, but you're doing so very well. I think you're Thank I you. think you've so far you're the winner. Oh my god, I didn't know you could win this game. Yeah, definitely. What? Brilliant. Whenever you're having a bad day, what is the best thing you can do to help cheer yourself up? Oh. Huh. Let's see. Um, I'd like to go barefoot running in forest preserves. In the rain, specifically, is my favorite time. Rain, cold, sloshing in mud. Completely barefoot? Completely barefoot. Not with those, like, uh, rubbery, toad-like no. <laughs> shoes, whatever they're called. I forget Vibras. what they're called. Foot gloves or something. <laughs> They're like foot gloves. I yeah, mean, yeah, they, yeah, they really do look like. Yeah. Well, I, I feel like um, a lot of the barefoot running lessons that I was taught is that you're supposed to listen to the soles of your feet and that they tell you when an injury is about to happen because they're so sensitive. Nice little barometers mm-hmm. for injury prevention. Mm-hmm. So if I've ever done that and put on the shoes or something that prevents me from feeling the bottom of the ground, they're feeling the ground, then I lose that sense. Cool. Really nice. Roscoe, what cheers you up the, when you're are, having a bad day? These are day? tough questions. If I was having a bad day, I would book a trip to New York. Nice. <laughs> then I would have something to look forward to. <laughs> 24 hours from now, I'll be watching a Broadway musical and staying in a hotel. That sounds nice. Wow. I would probably, let's see, I would probably, um, I would cook a meal for people, for friends. Wow. Oh. Yeah, and our producer. And you do that quite often. I do often. Uh, cool. Cook meals um, for for people. Not big, not big crowds. I don't like big. You crowds. make a great pot roast. I make a good pot roast, don't I? On Christmas Maybe Eve, it's... escalloped potatoes that were wow. probably the best potatoes I've ever had in my life. You're still tasting those, aren't you? I'm still tasting mm. those. I still have a that baggie at home incredible. that you gave me of leftovers. <laughs> yeah. still, really? Still? Yeah, they, they've <laughs> turned a little. <laughs> that was last Christmas. That was last Christmas. <laughs> this Christmas. Are we going to make you late for a call? Oh, what time is it? Well, it's that time. It's, it's that, that time. time. Yeah. It's that time. Melanie, it has been a great, great pleasure to have you with us Thank on you. Booth One. Likewise. I so, so much appreciate it. Roscoe? Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Will you come back and see us after, you know, you're a big star? Of course. Honey, you know I'll always come back. I'll oh, never thank you. Me. Remember your roots, child. You got it. Remember, you remember your the roots. people who helped you on the way up. Absolutely. <laughs> yes. Have a wonderful show tonight. Have thank a great you. rest of your run, and we hope to see you very soon again. Stay tuned on uh, Booth One to us, uh, if you would. Tell your friends. We Definitely. appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much. Okay, bye. bye. Goodbye. Well, what a remarkable and delightful and charming young lady Melanie Nealon is. Uh, We had a wonderful time with her on the podcast and uh, hope to see her again sometime soon. Hey, we mentioned that we were going to be doing our drawing for the giveaway of the $100 gift card to the Dawson Restaurant right here in Chicago at 730 West Grand Avenue. Well, our producer has gone and made the drawing from our, our email list. And the lucky winner is Sophia Federson. Well, congratulations, Sophia. Sophia Federson, winner of the Dawson gift card to have a wonderful, wonderful dinner on us, on Booth One. And we hope you have a real Booth One experience at the Dawson. We'll be getting that card out to you very, very soon. We're going to finish our episode today with our usual Kiss of Death segment. This one's a little bit special because it's written by our favorite obituary writer, Marguerite Fox, friend of the show and senior writer at the New York Times. And it is 
of someone who is sort of near and dear to her heart. If you've been listening to the podcast and you heard her interview uh, a few episodes ago, we asked her a question about what sort of things she would like to have delivered to her home every morning, like milk or the mail, uh, if she could have her way. And uh, the answer surprised us all. She said spinning fiber. Well, Alden Amos died. Alden Amos, whose spinning wheels gave Kraft a brighter fate, died at 77. Stradivari of Spinning Wheels, who as a master wheelmaker, teacher, and a deliciously opinionated author, helped spur the modern revival of the traditional craft of hand spinning, died on November 28th in the impassioned and overwhelmingly female world of contemporary hand spinners. Mr. Amos was renowned as a builder of wheels that spun like butter, so sought after that to buy one entailed a five-year waiting list. I wonder if Margalit has a hand-built wheel by Alden Amos. I'll have to ask her next time. Mr. Amos himself, he liked to say, had been spinning, quote, since Christ was a corporal. <laughs> I haven't heard that expression before. While people have been making yarn on hand spindles at least since the Stone Age, the spinning wheel, which mechanized the process, was introduced only in the Middle Ages. A spinning wheel is a twisting machine. The spinner takes a handful of loose fiber. This would be the spinning fiber that Marguerite Fox would hope to have delivered to her door every morning. Think of the cotton in the top of an aspirin bottle, for instance. Draws it out into a strand and feeds the strand into the wheel whose revolutions impart twist. The twist makes the yarn, turning an amorphous pile of fluff into a long, supple, durable string, which is then wound by the wheel onto the large spool known as a bobbin. The finished yarn can be used for knitting, weaving, crocheting, anything for which store-bought yarn can be employed. With the welter of commercial yarn available, an epidemic that by the mid-20th century had sent hand-spinning into near-terminal decline, an empirical question arises. Why spin? Well, that was my question. The answer, to hear spinners tell it, Margalit tells us, lies in the craft's tactile pleasure for the hands, visual pleasure for the eyes, and ultimately, restorative balm for the soul. To transform fiber on a wheel with complete control over the color, thickness, and texture that result is, ardent spinners say, the real-world equivalent of spinning straw into gold. Mr. Amos was, by all accounts, among the most ardent of them all. He was born October 3rd in Princess Anne, Virginia. His father, Marion, uh, was a Coast Guard officer. A grandfather, also a Coast Guard officer, had accompanied Rear Admiral Robert Perry to the Arctic in the early 20th century. From his mother, a knitwear designer, Alden learned to knit at four. <laughs> at eight, needing a string for his yo-yo, he did his first spinning, fashioning a new high-twist and therefore high-energy string himself, most likely by anchoring a length of cotton to a hook and twirling it by hand. I'd been playing with fibers and ropes and cords and yarns and threads ever since I was a little kid, Mr. Alden said in a 2009 interview, in which he also took pains to explain the importance for the hand spinner of drinking beer. I, I guess like watching football and playing pool, uh, drinking beer goes <laughs> hand in hand with hand spinning. In the 1960s, among his three army tours of Vietnam, Mr. Alden built his first spinning wheel from a pattern in popular mechanics. In the Army, he worked as a helicopter mechanic, and the understanding of the physics of rotary motion that the job gave him would stand him in fine stead as a wheelmaker. 
Today, mass-produced spinning wheels can be had from a spate of manufacturers worldwide for prices ranging from a few hundred dollars to more than a thousand. Mr. Amos's wheels, which sold for $1,200 to $2,200, were completely bespoke, taking into account not only each spinner's physique, but also the type of yarn, wool, or silk, thick or thin, that the spinner made most often. The 600 wheels he completed over time were elegant, streamlined affairs, devoid of the mechanical bells and whistles with which some commercial wheels are endowed. Quote, we're not rediscovering the spinning wheel each time we make one, Mr. Amos said. If the wheel will produce yarn faster than you can and do so with a minimum of hassle, it puts in twist, takes the yarn away and nothing else. Well, that's all you want. All the rest is eyewash. Alden Amos, whose spinning wheels gave Kraft a brighter fate, a fond farewell from Marguerite Fox. Well, that's all the time we have uh, today. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. Join us again on Booth One for more adventures in the art of lively conversation. I'm your host, Gary Zabinski, saying so long and take care. <laughs> <laughs>